Welcome, everyone, to another chapter of our Jane Eyre read-along. I am your odd chapter reader, Morgan. I'm your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And when we're not reading Jane Eyre painstakingly one chapter at a time, we are the co-hosts of the romance novel podcast, Romance. Romance! So if you'd like something pretty different, you should check that out if you're not already into that. But... Last week, Isabeau read to us chapter 14. I did. And can you give us a recap? Chapter 14 was an exciting one, folks. And as you remember, (laughs) for those of you reading along at home, call it like a baseball game. I love that. (laughs) Mr. Rochester and our dear Jane had a tete a tete. They talked about a lot of stuff, including forgiveness, the nature of temptation and evil. Mr. Rochester was talking both in specifics and generalities, and dear Jane was only picking up on the generalities. But what we got and understood, and what I want you to understand from last chapter, is that Mr. Rochester feels deep and dark and dirty about something, but he and Jane love trading barbs and scintillating witticisms with one another. Absolutely. All right. Chapter 15, this week's chapter, is going to pick up right with the man of the hour himself. What, what, what? Mr. Rochester did, on a future occasion, explain it. Should we go back? (laughs) What is it? What is it? Do you want to read the reread the last paragraph of chapter 14? Sure. This is unprecedented, but I do feel like it will be helpful to listeners. It's <laughs> true. Not remember what it is. So, Mr. Rochester's ward asks, what is she saying here? Isn't that so, sir? She says, "Thank you so very much, sir, for your kindness. Mama used to do it like that, didn't she?" Yes. And then he says to her, precisely was the answer, and come Salah, she charmed my English gold out of my British britches pocket. I have been green too, Miss Eyre, aye, grass green, not a more vernal tint freshens you now than once freshened me. My spring is gone, however, but it has left me that French flowerette on my hands, which, in some moods, I would fain be rid of, not valuing now the root whence it sprang, having found that it was the sort which nothing but gold dust could manure. I have but half a liking to the blossom, especially when it looks so artificial as now. I keep it and rear it, rather on the Roman Catholic principle of expiating numerous sins, great or small, by one good work. I'll explain all this someday. Good night. So he's talking the it there, the flower, the floret there is his ward come daughter. Well, in his obligation, his Roman Catholic obligation to her. Right. All right. Mr. Rochester did, on a future occasion, explain it. It was one afternoon when he chanced to meet me and Adele in the grounds, and while she played with Pilot and her shuttlecock, he asked me to walk up and down a long beach avenue within sight of her. He then said that she was the daughter of a French opera dancer, Céline Verens, toward whom he once cherished what he called a grand passion. <laughs> this passion Céline had professed to return with even superior ardor. He thought himself her idol, Ugly as he was, he believed, as he said, that she preferred his Thai Deathleet to the elegance of the Apollo Belvedere. So Thai Deathleet means athletic build. 
So I do want to point out that the book is putting the athletic build at a lower social standing. Than the face of Apollo. Yeah, which it enjoys a higher social standing today. The athletic build is the ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily true in the text. And Miss Eyre, so much was a flattered by this preference of the Gallic sylph. <laughs> her British gnome, that I installed her in a hotel, gave her complete establishment of servants, a carriage, cashmeres, diamonds, dentels, lacework, etc. In short, I began the process of ruining myself in the received style, like any other spoonie. Spoonie is slang for a foolish lover. Spoonie. I'm going to start using that in my common day vernacular. I had not, it seems, the originality to chalk out a new road to shame and destruction, but trod the old track with stupid exactness not to deviate an inch from the beaten center. I had, as I deserve to have, the fate of all other spoonies. Happening to call one evening when Celine did not expect me, I found her out. But it was a warm night, and I was tired with strolling through Paris, so I sat down in her boudoir, happy to breathe the air consecrated so lately by her presence. No, I exaggerate. I never thought there was any consecrating virtue about her. It was rather a sort of pastille perfume she had left, a scent of musk and amber, than an odor of sanctity. I was just beginning to stifle with the fumes of conservatory flowers and sprinkled essences, and I bethought myself to open the window and step out on the balcony. It was moonlight and gaslight besides, and very still and serene. Balcony was furnished with a chair or two. I sat down, took out a cigar. I will take one now if you will excuse me. Here ensued a pause, filled by the producing and lighting of a cigar, having placed it to his lips and breathed a trail of Havana incense on the freezing and sunless air, he went on. Or, more simply, he then lit a cigar. You know, we often talk about how heroines always smell like jasmine in romance novels, and I like the idea that the oppositional fragrance is musk and amber. I liked bonbons too in those days, Miss Eyre, and I was croquant, overlook the barbarism, croquant, chocolate confits, and smoking alternately. So croquant means munching. It is unclear whether the barbarism refers to the use of the French as the participle with the English was, or to the combination of eating chocolates and smoking tobacco. I'm sure it's both. Excuse the barbarism of my conjugation. Watching, the meantime, the equipage that rolled along the fashionable street toward the neighboring opera house when, in an elegant close carriage, drawn by a beautiful pair of English horses, and distinctly seen in the brilliant city night, I recognized the voiture I had given Celine. She was returning. Of course, my heart thumped with impatience against the iron rails I leaned upon. The carriage stopped, as I had expected, at the hotel door. My flame... That is the very word for an opera in a morata, alighted. Though muffled in a cloak, an unnecessary encumbrance, by the by, on so warm a June evening, I knew her instantly, by her little foot seen peeping from the skirt of her dress, as she skipped from the carriage step. Bending over the balcony, I was about to murmur, Mon ange, in the tone, of course, which would be audible to the ear of love alone when a figure jumped from the carriage after her, cloaked also, but that was a spurred heel which had rung on the pavement, and that was a hatted head which now passed under the arched porte-cochere of the hotel. You never felt jealousy, did you, Miss Eyre? 
Of course not. I need not ask you because you never felt love. You have both sentiments yet to experience. Your soul sleeps. The shock is yet to be given which shall awaken it. You think all existence lapses in as quiet a flow as that in which your youth has hitherto slid away. Floating on with closed eyes and muffled ears, you neither see the rocks bristling not far off in the bed of the flood, nor hear the breakers boil at their base. But I tell you, and you may mark my words, you will come someday to a craggy pass of the channel, where the whole of life's stream will be broken up into whirl and tumult, foam and noise. Either you will be dashed to atoms on crag points, or lifted up and borne on by some master wave into a calmer current, as I am now. Pause. Is that just a massive euphemism for an orgasm? You will come to a channel? Yeah, no. Where the whole of life's stream will be broken up into a whirl and tumult, foam and noise. I believe I've read orgasms described this way. I believe so did Charlotte Bronte, but I don't know how aware she was that she was reading orgasms described that way. I feel like she's describing her own orgasm. I think what's happened here, twofold. What's happened on the page is that Rochester, in remembering his former flame, has gotten a little titillated. Yes. And is thinking about titillation in terms of Jane, who he's demonstrably attracted to, right? Yes. And he's just getting wrapped up in it. All right. Okay. What I think is also happening is that Charlotte Bronte, she writes these really beautiful, like visual, poetic, they're fun to read aloud. I can't believe I've never read this out loud before. Types of passages. And I think she's really flexing on that with this piece. And it's one of those things that like is really lovely to read outside of the context of a 35-year-old employer telling his 20-year-old governess. Totally. And the context makes it a little laughable that he's like talking about his great lost love of this opera singer. Yeah, his lost youth on top of it. Like there's so many like sad points to Rochester. Are they sad or are they regular? Like all adventurous people should have something like this. Sure, but I mean, he's so condescending and like the idea that like love and youth are so deeply connected for him here. And like he's fetishizing Jane Eyre's youth and naivety. And he's also just like always already obsessed with his own martyrdom. Yes. And unaware of all of the politics swirling in that ether of the sea that he's describing, right? Like he doesn't know how bad the opera dancer had it, right? Right. Nothing about her personal place is mentioned here. Nothing about her perspective in all of this. And his job in describing love and youth so beautifully is to render his loss of it so piquant, right? Exactly. And uh, it's like, whatever, dude. I like this day. I like that sky of steel. I like the sternness and stillness of the world under this frost. I like Thornfield, its antiquity, its retirement, its old crow trees and thorn trees, its gray facade and lines of dark windows reflecting that metal welkin. And yet, how I have abhorred the very thought of it, shunned it like a great plague house. How I do still abhor. He ground his teeth and was silent. He arrested his step and struck his boot against the hard ground. Some hated thought seemed to have him in its grip, and to hold him so tightly what he could not advance. We were ascending the avenue when he thus paused. The hall was before us. Lifting his eyes to its battlements, he cast over them a glare which as I had never saw before or since. Pain, shame, ire, 
impatience, disgust, detestation, seemed momentarily to hold a quivering conflict in the large pupil dilating under his ebon eyebrow. Wild was the wrestle which should be paramount, but another feeling rose in triumph, something hard and cynical, self-willed and resolute. It settled his passion and petrified his countenance. He went on. During the moment I was silent, Miss Eyre, I was arranging a point with my destiny. She stood there, by that beech trunk, a hag like one of those who appeared to Macbeth on the heath of fours. You like Thornfield, she said, lifting her finger. And then she wrote in the air a memento, which ran in lurid hieroglyphics all along the house front, between the upper and lower row of windows. Like it if you can. Like it if you dare. I will like it, said I. I dare like it, and, he subjoined moodily, I will keep my word. I will break obstacles to happiness, to goodness, yes, goodness. I wish to be a better man than I have been, than I am. As Job's Leviathan broke the spear, Job, the dart and the Habergian hindrances, which others count as iron and brass, I will esteem but straw and rotten wood. Gorgeous. Such a martyr. Also, once again, just wants Jane to know that he's into stuff like her watercolors too. Yeah, I mean, if you're bringing forth Job and his many trials, including the Leviathan, they both into dark stuff. They're both into dark stuff. He's martyring himself. But I cannot shake the feeling that he's like trying to seem cool to her. Yeah. That's conjecture on my part, but that's how I'm choosing to read it. No, I mean, think of all the references he's literally just made. We've got Shakespeare, we've got the Bible, we've got hieroglyphs, so we've got like a burgeoning Egyptology happening here. You don't do that unless you're trying to impress somebody. Ah, I'm very happy about this next passage. Adele here ran before him with her shuttlecock. Away, he cried harshly. Keep at a distance, child, or go into Sophie. Continuing then to pursue his walk in silence, I ventured to recall him to the point where he had abruptly diverged. Did you leave the balcony, sir? I asked, when Mademoiselle Varens entered. I almost expected a rebuff for this hardly well-timed question, but, on the contrary, walking out of his scowling abstraction, he turned his eyes toward me and the shade seemed to clear off his brow. Oh, I had forgotten Celine! Well, to resume, when I saw my charmer thus come in accompanied by a cavalier, I seemed to hear a hiss and the green snake of jealousy rising on undulating coils from the moonlit balcony glided within my waistcoat and ate its way in two minutes to my heart's core. Oh, so vivid. So gorgeous. Strange, he exclaimed, suddenly starting again from the point. Strange that I should choose you for the confidant of all this, young lady. Passing strange that you should listen to me quietly as if it were the most usual thing in the world for a man like me to tell stories of his opera mistresses to a quaint, inexperienced girl like you. But the last singularity explains the first. As I intimated once before, you, with your gravity, considerateness, and caution were made to be the recipient of secrets. Not like other girls. Not like other girls. Besides, I know what sort of a mind I have placed in communication with my own. I know it is one not liable to take infection. It is a peculiar mind. It is a unique one. Happily, I do not mean to harm it. But if I ever did, it would not take harm from me. Chill. So I don't really need to worry about it. I'll be a nice guy, I guess, but I don't have to because you've got the mental fortitude. You've got the mental fortitude. So shitty. God. The more you and I converse, the better. For while I cannot blight you, you may refresh me. Jesus. Ugh. Save me, Jane, from myself. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. You're the only one who can because of your lack of feelings and your fortitude and your tiny little hands. Your innocence. After this digression, he proceeded, as shall we. He's still talking. Listeners, I need you to understand that this is just paragraphs and paragraphs of monologue. Imagine yourself, and I don't think it's hard for many people who are listening right now to imagine themselves in this exact scenario, walking along with a man telling you about himself. And now we arrive at the confession. I remained in the balcony. They will come to her boudoir, no doubt, thought I. Let me prepare an ambush. So putting my hand in through the open window, I drew the curtain over it, leaving only an opening through which I could take observations. Then I closed the casement, all but a chink, just wide enough to furnish an outlet to lovers' whispered vows. Then I stole back to my chair, and as I resumed it, the pair came in. My eye was quickly at the aperture. Celine's chambermaid entered, lighted a lamp, and left it on the table, and withdrew. The couple were thus revealed to me clearly. Both removed their cloaks, and there was the Varens, shining in satin and jewels, my gifts, of course. And there was her companion in an officer's uniform, and I knew him for a young roué of a vicomte, a brainless and vicious youth who I had sometimes met in society and had never thought of hating because I despised him so abundantly. (laughs) Never thought of hating because I already despised him. (laughs) I despised him so absolutely. Unrecognizing him, the fang of the snake, jealousy, was instantly broken, because at the same moment my love for Celine sunk under an extinguisher. A woman who could betray me for such a rival was not worth contending for. She deserved only scorn, less, however, than I, who had been her dupe. They began to talk. Their conversation eased me completely. Oh my god, he's just sitting there listening to them talk. And he's hating them and feeling validated and hating them. But just sitting there behind a curtain. Yeah. Behind a curtain. Is there anything less dignified? They began to talk. Their conversation eased me completely. Frivolous. Mercenary. Heartless and senseless. It was rather calculated to weary than enrage a listener. A card of mine laid on the table, this being perceived, brought my name under discussion. Neither of them possessed energy or wit to belabor me soundly, but they insulted me as coarsely as they could in their little way. Especially Celine, who even waxed rather brilliant on my personal defects, deformities, she termed them. Now it had been her custom to launch into fervent admiration of what she called my beauté mal, wherein she deferred diametrically from you, who told me point-blank at the second interview that you did not think me handsome. The contrast struck me at the time, and Adele here came running up again. Monsieur, John has been to say that your agent has called and wishes to see you. Ah, in that case I must abridge. Opening the window, I walked in upon them, liberated Celine from my protection, gave her notice to vacate her hotel, offered her a purse for immediate exigencies, disregarded screams, hysterics, prayers, protestations, convolutions, convulsions, made an appointment with the Vicomte for a meeting at the Bois du Boulange. It's gotta get this guy fired, right? Yeah, like with a bullet in his gut. Next morning, I had the pleasure of encountering him, left a bullet in one of his pure, etiolated arms, feeble as the wing of a chick in the pip, and then thought I had done with the whole crew. 
But unluckily, the Varens, six months before, had given me this fillet, Adele, who she affirmed was my daughter, and perhaps she may be, though I see no proofs of such grim paternity written in her countenance. Pilot is more like me than she. Some years, after I had broken with the mother, she abandoned her child and ran away to Italy with a musician or singer. I acknowledge no natural claim on Adele's part to be supported by me, nor do I now acknowledge any, for I am not her father. But hearing she was quite destitute, I e'en took the poor thing out of the slime and mud of Paris and transplanted it here to grow up clean in the wholesome soil of an English country garden. Mrs. Fairfax found you to train it, and now you know that it is the illegitimate offspring of a French opera girl, you will perhaps think differently of your post and protege. You will be coming to me someday with notice that you have found another place, that you beg me to look out for a new governess, etc. Eh? No. Adele is not answerable for either her mother's faults or yours. Because you're obviously the father. You're obviously the father. Like, let's get Maury in here, you dick. Yeah, let's get Maury, Maury. I have a regard for her. Now I know she is, in a sense, parentless. Forsaken by her mother and disowned by you, sir, I shall cling closer to her than before. How could I possibly defer the spoiled pet of a wealthy family, who would hate her governess as a nuisance, or a lonely little orphan, who leans towards her as a friend? Hmm. Oh, that is the light in which you view it. Well, I must go now, and you too. It darkens. But I stayed out a few minutes longer with Adele and Pilot, ran a race with her, and played a game of battledore and shuttlecock. When we went in and I had removed her bonnet and coat, I took her on my knee, kept her there for an hour, allowing her to prattle as she liked, not rebuking even some of the little freedoms and trivialities into which she was apt to stray when much noticed, and which betrayed in her superficiality of character, inherited probably from her mother, hardly congenial to an English mind. Still, she had her merits, and I was disposed to appreciate all that was good in her to the utmost. I sought in her countenance and features a likeness to Mr. Rochester, but found none. No trait, no turn of expression, announced relationship. It was a pity. If she could but have been proved to resemble him, he would have thought more of her. I think it's safe to say Jane has tingles for Rochester at this point. Totally. It would be so hard to hear that your predecessor was like a beautiful opera dancer, you know? Yeah, and like he makes no bones about it either. It's like she was the sun, my <laughs> flame, right? No, he's such a monster. <laughs> I think he also kind of wants Jane to know because Jane was so frank with him about his appearance, right? Oh, totally. Like he likes to act like he's not insecure about it, but he's mentioned his own appearance numerous times, and the only brilliance he's attributed to Celine is the fact that she could brutally take down his appearance, like. Okay, guy. Yeah, called them his deformities. But I understand why Jane is understanding this woman to be a villain on her own behalf and not just because of Rochester. It was not until after I had withdrawn to my own chamber for the night that I steadily revealed the tale Mr. Rochester had told me. As he had said, there was probably nothing at all extraordinary in the substance of the narrative itself. A wealthy Englishman's passion for a French dancer and her treachery to him were everyday matters, enough, no doubt, in society. There was something decidedly strange in the paroxysm of emotion which had suddenly seized him when he was in the act of expressing the present contentment of his mood and his newly revived pleasure in the old hall and its environs. I meditated wonderingly on this incident, but gradually quitting it, as I found it for the present inexplicable, I turned to the consideration of my master's manner to myself. The confidence he had thought fit to repose in me seemed a tribute to my discretion. 
I regarded and accepted it as such. His deportment had now for some weeks been more uniform toward me than at first. I never seemed in his way, and he did not take fits of chilling hauteur when he met me unexpectedly. The encounter seemed welcome. He had always a word and sometimes a smile for me when summoned by formal invitation to his presence. I was honored by a cordiality of reception, and it made me feel I really possessed the power to amuse him, and that these evening conferences were sought as much for his pleasure as for my benefit. I indeed talked comparatively little, but I heard him talk with relish. It was his nature to be communicative. He liked to open to a mind unacquainted with the world glimpses of its scenes and ways. I do not mean its corrupt scenes and wicked ways, but such as derived their interest from the great scale on which they were acted, the strange novelty by which they were characterized, and I had a keen delight in receiving the new ideas he offered, in imagining the new pictures he portrayed, and following him in thought through the new regions he disclosed, never startled or troubled by one noxious illusion. The ease of his manner freed me from painful restraint. The friendly frankness, as correct as cordial with which he treated me, drew me to him. I felt, at times, as if he were my relation, rather than my master. Yet he was imperious sometimes still, but I did not mind that. I saw it was his way. So happy, so gratified, did I become with this new interest added to life that I ceased to pine after kindred. My thin crescent destiny seemed to enlarge. The blanks of existence were filled up. My bodily health improved. I gathered flesh and strength. And was Mr. Rochester now ugly in my eyes? No, reader. Gratitude and many associations, all pleasurable and genial, made his face the object I best liked to see. His presence in a room was more cheering than the brightest fire, yet I had not forgotten his faults. Indeed, I could not, for he brought them frequently before me. He was proud, sardonic, harsh to inferiority of every description. In my secret soul, I knew that his great kindness to me was balanced by unjust severity to others. Isn't that, like, so delicious when someone is uh, over-the-top kind to you and it's clearly not their habit? It feels so special. He was moody, too, unaccountably so. I more than once, when sent for to read to him, found him sitting in his library alone with his head bent on his folded arms, and when he looked up, a morose, almost malignant scowl blackened his features. But I believe that his moodiness, his harshness, and his former faults of morality, I say former, for now he seemed corrected of them, had their source in some cruel cross of fate. Believed he was naturally a man of better tendencies, higher principles, and purer tastes than such as circumstances had developed, education instilled, or destiny encouraged. I thought there were excellent materials in him, though, for the present, they hung together somewhat spoiled and tangled. I cannot deny that I grieved for his grief, whatever that was, and would have given much to assuage it. Though I had now extinguished my candle and was laid down in bed, I could not sleep for thinking of his look when he paused in the avenue and told how his destiny had risen up before him and dared him to be happy at Thornfield. Why not? I asked myself. What alienates him from the house? Will he leave it again soon? Mrs. Fairfax said he seldom stayed here longer than a fortnight at a time and he has now been resident eight weeks. If he does go, the change will be doleful. Suppose he should be absent, spring, summer, and autumn. How joyless sunshine and fine days will seem. 
I hardly know whether I had slept or not after this musing. At any rate, I started wide awake on hearing a vague murmur, peculiar and lugubrious, which sounded, I thought, just above me. I wished I had kept my candle burning. The night was drearily dark. My spirits were depressed. I rose and sat up in bed, listening. The sound hushed. I tried again to sleep, but my heart beat anxiously. My inward tranquility was broken. The clock far down in the hall struck two. Just then, it seemed my chamber door was touched, as if fingers had swept the panels and groping away along the dark gallery outside. I said, who's there? Nothing answered. I was chilled with fear. All at once, I remembered that it might be Pilot, who, when the kitchen door chanced to be left open, not unfrequently found his way up to the threshold of Mr. Rochester's chamber. I had seen him lying there myself in the mornings. The idea calmed me somewhat. I laid down. Silence composes the nerves, and as an unbroken hush now reigned again and through the whole house, I began to feel the return of slumber. But it was not fated that I should sleep that night. A dream had scarcely approached my ear when it fled affrighted, scared by a marrow-freezing incident enough. This was a demoniac laugh, low, suppressed, and deep, muttered, as it seemed, at the very keyhole of my chamber door. The head of my bed was near the door, and I thought at first the goblin laughter stood at my bedside, or rather crouched by my pillow. But I rose, looked around, and could see nothing. While, as I still gazed, the unnatural sound was reiterated, and I knew it came from behind the panels. My first impulse was to rise and fasten the bolt, my next again to cry out, who is there? Something gurgled and moaned. Ere long, steps retreated up the gallery toward the third-story staircase. A door had lately been made to shut in that staircase. I heard it open and close, and all was still. Was that Grape's pool? And is she possessed with a devil? Thought I. Now to remain longer by myself, I must go to Mrs. Fairfax. I hurried on my frock and a shawl. I withdrew the bolt and opened the door with trembling hand. There was a candle burning just outside, left on the matting in the gallery. I was surprised at this circumstance, but still more was I amazed to perceive the air quite dim, as if it filled with smoke. And while looking to the right hand and left, to find whence those blue wreaths issued, I became further aware of a strong smell of burning. Something creaked. It was a door ajar. And that door was Mr. Rochester's, and the smoke rushed in a cloud from thence. I thought no more of Mrs. Fairfax. I thought no more of Grace Poole or the laugh. In an instant, I was within the chamber. Tongues of flame darted round the bed. The curtains were on fire. In the midst of blaze and vapor, Mr. Rochester lay stretched motionless in deep sleep. Wake! Wake! I cried. I shook him. But he only murmured and turned. The smoke had stupefied him. Not a moment could be lost. The very sheets were kindling. I rushed to his basin, and you were. Fortunately, one was wide enough and the other deep, and both were filled with water. I heaved them up, deluged the bed and its occupant, flew back to my own room, brought my own water jug, baptized the couch afresh, and, by God's aid, succeeded in extinguishing the flames which were devouring it. The hiss of the quenched element, the breakage of a pitcher which I flung from my hand when I had emptied it, and above all, the splash of the shower bath I had liberally bestowed, roused Mr. Rochester at last. Though it was now dark, I knew he was awake, because I heard him fulminating strange anathemas at finding himself lying in a pool of water. 
Is there a flood? He cried. <laughs> no, sir, I answered. But there had been a fire. Get up. Do you are quenched now. I will fetch you a candle. In the name of all the elves in Christendom. Is that Jane Eyre? He demanded. What have you done with me, witch sorceress? Who is in the room besides you? Have you plotted to drown me? I will fetch you a candle, sir, and in heaven's name get up. Somebody has plotted something. You cannot too soon find out who and what it is. There, I am up now, but at your peril you fetch a candle yet. Wait two minutes till I get into some dry garments, if any dry there be. Yes, there is. Here's my dressing gown. Now run. I did run. I brought the candle which still remained in the gallery. He took it from my hand, held it up, and surveyed the bed. All blackened and scorched, the sheets drenched, the carpet round, swimming in water. What is it, and who did it? He asked. I briefly related to him what had transpired. The strange laugh I had heard in the gallery. The step ascending to the third story, the smoke, the smell of fire which had conducted me to his room, in what state I had found matters there, and how I had deluged him with the water I could lay my hands on. He listened very gravely. His face, as I went on, expressed more concern than astonishment. He did not immediately speak when I had concluded. Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax, I asked. Mrs. Fairfax? No, what the deuce would you call her for? What can she do? Let her sleep unmolested. Then I will fetch Leah and wake John and his wife. Not at all, just be still. You have a shawl on. If you are not warm enough, you may take my cloak yonder, wrap it about you, and sit down in the armchair there. I will put it on. Now place your feet on the stool and keep them out of the wet. I am going to leave you a few minutes. I shall take the candle. Remain where you are till I return. Be as still as a mouse. I must pay a visit to the third story. Don't move, remember, or call anyone. He went. I watched the light withdraw. He passed up the gallery very softly, unclosed the staircase door with as little noise as possible, shut it after him, and the last ray vanished. I was left in total darkness. I listened for some noise, but heard nothing. A very long time elapsed. I grew wary. It was cold in spite of the cloak, and then I did not see the use of staying. As I was not to rouse the house, I was on point of risking Mr. Rochester's displeasure by disobeying his orders when the light once more gleamed dimly in the gallery wall, and I heard his unshod feet tread the matting. I hope it is he, thought I, and not something worse. Heavy. Such a good line. He ran entered, pale and very gloomy. I found it all out, said he, setting the candle down on the washstand. It is as I thought. How, sir? He made no reply, but stood with his arms folded, looking at the ground. At the end of a few minutes, he inquired, in rather a peculiar tone, I forget whether you said you saw anything when you opened your chamber door. No, sir, only the candlestick on the ground. But you heard an odd laugh. You have heard that laugh before, I should think, or something like it. Yes, sir, there is a woman who sews here called Grace Poole. She laughs in that way. She is a singular person. Just so. Grace Poole, you have guessed it. She is, as you say, singular. Very. Well, I shall reflect on the subject. Meantime, I'm glad you are the only person, besides myself, acquainted with the precise details of tonight's incident. You are no talking fool. Say nothing about it. I will account for this state of affairs, pointing to the bed, and now return you to your own room. I shall do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night. It is near four. In two hours, the servants will be up. Good night, then, sir, said I, departing. He seemed surprised, very inconsistently so, as he had just told me to go. What? he exclaimed. Are you quitting me already and in that way? 
You said I might go, sir, but not without taking leave, not without a word or two of acknowledgement and goodwill, not, in short, in that brief, dry fashion. Why, you have saved my life, snatched me from a horrible and excruciating death, and you walk past me as if we're mutual strangers. At least shake hands. Oh, a little more shaken than you would want us to believe, eh, Mr. Rochester? He held out his hand. I gave him mine. He took it first in one, and in both his own. You have saved my life. I have a pleasure in owing you so immense a debt. I cannot say more. Nothing else that has being would have been tolerable to me in the character of creditor for such an obligation. But you, it is different. I feel your benefits no burden, Jane. He paused, gazed at me. Words almost visible trembled on his lips, but his voice was checked. Good night again, sir. There is no debt, benefit, burden, obligation in the case. I knew, he continued, you would do me good in some way, at some time. I saw it in your eyes when I first beheld you. Their expression and smile did not, again he stopped, did not, he proceeded hastily, strike delight to my very inmost heart so for nothing. People talk of natural sympathies. I have heard, good genie, there are grains of truth in the wildest fable, my cherished preserver, good night. Strange energy was in his voice, strange fire in his look. I'm glad I happened to be awake, I said, and then I was going. What, you will go? I am cold, sir. Cold? Yes, and standing in a pool. Go then, Jane, go. But he still retained my hand, and I could not free it. I bethought myself of an expedient. I think I hear Mrs. Fairfax move, sir, said I. Well, leave me. He relaxed his fingers, and I was gone. I regained my couch, but never thought of sleep. Till morning dawn, I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea where billows of trouble whirled under surges of joy. I thought sometimes I saw beyond its wild waters a shore, sweet as the hills of Beulah, now and then freshening gale, wakened by hope, bore my spirit triumphantly toward the bourne, but I could not reach it. Even in fancy, counteracting breeze blew off land and continually drove me back. Sense would resist the delirium, judgment would warn passion. Too feverish to rest, I rose as soon as day dawned. The hills of Beulah are from Isaiah. Beulah means married in the Pilgrim's Progress. The country is upon the borders of heaven in this land. Also, the contract between the bride and the bridegroom is renewed. That's the end of my first volume. All right. Boy, that whiff of death was real good. And it's our girl Jane who saves the hero, which I love. Yeah, it's still so rare. I also like that we get a little bit of his perspective saying that he sort of felt a spark the first time he saw her. Talking about that kind of affect as like a good genie or or something like that. Yeah, that you would have these common sympathies. The other thing that's so striking to me, particularly about this chapter, is that it feels so much like a contemporary popular romance, right? You know, they have this thing where he is like talking about his life. It starts with this confession. He tells her that she's not like other girls. She feels all warm and special. And then she thinks about him leaving. And then she's like, oh no, summer would be so bad without him. That is the thing that is keeping her awake which creates the moment for her to catch the goblin's laughter in the hallway and then creates this moment for her to save Rochester which is clearly very moving to him that whiff of death the idea that she would come in her under things and not only wake him but like which she couldn't but then actually bodily save him 
And then he just doesn't want to let her hand go. Both of his hands. I also think about the ways this is different from a contemporary romance, right? We don't get the heroine explicitly expressing that his confidence in her makes her feel special, right? Like Jane doesn't really describe her own feelings beyond like, I like to see him, right? And she doesn't speculate about his feelings either, which is also very different from contemporary. And I am just absolutely pressed with all of these rich lines of text, as annoying as it is to think about him going on these diatribes, they are a pleasure to read outside of their context. Yeah, outside of their context, they're both so beautifully verbose. And like, it's so beautiful to read about the nature of emotion as like the billowing surges of a sea of joy with like the fomenting trouble, like just the infusion of nature into their conversations about themselves and their internality. It's so rich and natural. But the nature that they want to talk about is pretty narrow. It's the sea, right? It's tumult and water. And of course, then she splashes him with a deluge in order to save his life. And then is once again kind of imagining herself on this sea that is both thrilling and exhausting. She cannot reach the shore, but she's buoyed constantly by the ocean. I think that's exactly right to point out that it's the sea and the sky that they talk about, like these expansive, unlanded spaces. But whenever land comes in as safety, it's like a crag or like the shore is too far away or it's like this unpenetrable shore because it's like just a cliff face. And I think that's interesting too, where it's like the borders of their internality are as dangerous as the landscapes that they write themselves on. And the other thing that I want to bring up is how much folklore is in this chapter, right? Like we've got genies, we've got the hieroglyphs. He always calls on elves and he refers to her as an elf at some points. And she refers to him as guy trash when she first meets him, which is a made up mythical creature. Well, we get the parallelism resolved, right? Because she thinks of him as a made up guy trash, right? And then we discover that he had more specifically thought of her as something mystical because she made him feel all fluttery when he first saw her eyes or whatever. Exactly. And so the ways in which they are of this world, but also their love exists in some sort of mythic space. Yeah. It feels so silly, but also so correct. (laughs) Yeah. There are these like anchor points in a reality where she's like, I looked forward to seeing his face and I could tell that he trusted me for whatever reason. And these like little things that I think everyone can connect with. Everyone has had one person whose face brightens their day or whatever. It's like these little pinpoints and then like the blowing sail behind it is like this oceanic mystical belief, which is a very, I don't know if I want to say traditional, but certainly a way of understanding love that is not unique to this text, though perhaps uniquely embodied. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, I'd have to go back and reread it, but I don't think Darcy or Elizabeth's internality was ever described in this way. But this is already 30 years removed from that text. A lot of stuff had happened. I 
also want to touch briefly on that goblin laughter. We see some choices. The choice to pause at the keyhole, the choice to light Rochester's curtains on fire. And it's so scary and you read it so well. Like the tension of that scene is insane because it starts with the laughter, but then it ends with the moan. And there was a moment where like when she couldn't wake Rochester that I honestly believed that like he'd been conked unconscious. Like I've read this book several times and like I thought she was going to have to drag him bodily from the bed. And I think the idea, especially of the whispering at the keyhole, where it felt like the goblin was perched next to her ear. Gurgling, murmuring. Right. And these are choices. But I think what's happening here with obviously this atmospheric move is also been carried forward from previous chapters where it's like there is an ominous presence in the house, but there's also an ominous weight attached to Rochester and whatever this like lost youth or bad choice like now it feels like it's making its manifestation in the house but like this omnipresence has already been present and presented and attached to Rochester. Yes it's interesting in my memory of this book this atmospheric stuff that we get right before she discovers the fire is like throughout the text and I did not expect the fire to happen so soon even though it's not soon at all but I was like, oh, well, this has to continue. I remember this like being a continuous thing, this like creaking, gothic, spooky stuff. But it's a lot more compacted, a lot more densely concentrated. And you're right. The real atmospheric stuff is like, what's Rochester's deal? Which I think is very relevant. Yeah, I think so, too. So as Isabeau said, this is the conclusion of her part one, book one, which is a really inconsistent practice if you're following along with us. We know like my book doesn't have any parts, just chapters. But with that, we are going to take a brief respite from our weekly readings. Yep. For those of you who want to get caught up or re-listen to some other stuff, get yourself a version from the library. Now's the perfect time. If you just want to take a bathroom break, if you're listening to this two years after the initial release. This is the moment that we're going to take a pause to investigate our own creeping goblins and other mysterious of 2021 as it moves through our lives. But we will be back that first week of February and we look forward to exploring more of the dense internalities of Rochester and Jane. So it's hard for us to let your tiny hand go out of our two big hands even though you're cold and wet. Is this how you'll leave us? Is this how you would leave us? (laughs) This is how we would leave you. I hear Mrs. Fairfax. (laughs) We gotta go. She's getting up or something. All right. See you in February. See you in February. With that. Loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah! <laughs>